It's good to be here with you all uh, this morning. And um, for those of you that are, are newer uh, with us, um, so yeah, my name is Jeff. I serve as associate pastor here. Our senior pastor, uh, Max Benford, is on sabbatical uh, this summer. So keep praying uh, for him and, and uh, the rest that he's getting uh, this summer. And we have had uh, Stan Gale uh, leading us through uh, the book of James. And he's not here this morning, but I just really want to express uh, appreciation for him. He's actually guest preaching at another uh, church near us this morning. I'm like, for a retired guy, you know, he really uh, is putting in the hours. So, but we're very, uh, we're very grateful uh, for him and, and for him leading us through the book of James. My privilege to continue that series uh, today. So let me just pray for us once more and we'll dive into this, this passage. Lord, we are thankful uh, for your goodness and kindness towards us. And so grateful uh, that you are a God who speaks, as we've already uh, seen in, in the first chapter of James. We thank you for your word. We thank you, even when it uh, unsettles us, Lord, that uh, it is good and true, and uh, we know that it all points uh, to our Savior, and so we thank you for that. Pray today we would see uh, the truth and goodness of your word and the beauty uh, of our Savior Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, some years back, years back, there was a fire at the George Washington Hotel, which is in Pittsburgh, and firefighters were brought in to respond uh, to the blaze, and they were able to stop the fire and save the building, but in the process of fighting the fire and going from room to room, they made a horrifying discovery. They came upon a room where there was all the evidence of just a, a terrible series of, of violent crimes. And this fit right into local legends about the hotel because over the years, a number of people had met an untimely end when they were staying at this hotel, and people began to believe that the hotel itself was haunted. Well, after the fire was under control, the police were brought in to investigate uh, the situation, and the police chief at the time, J.R. Blythe, was ready to lead the investigation. He had over three decades uh, in law enforcement under his belt, so you would think uh, he would have seen pretty much everything. But upon coming into this awful hotel room, Blythe was stunned. He later called the hotel room the most grisly crime scene he had ever seen in his 35 years of work. And the coroner was brought in. Extra detectives were dispatched, working eight hours of overtime in order to get a head start on what was sure to be a long and difficult case. Eventually, the hotel's owner, a man named Kirk Pyros, was summoned to the room. And when he came into the room, he did something surprising. He began to smile. The coroner saw him smiling and said, I don't find this very funny. But it was funny to Mr. Pyros because he knew something that these police officers did not know. He knew that this hotel had rented a room to some movie producers. And he knew that this movie in particular was a very gory horror movie. And he also knew that he had never bothered cleaning up the room just in case the producers of the movie needed to come back and shoot additional scenes. The external appearances didn't tell the true story of what was going on. We know this happens all the time in life, sometimes with humorous results, but very often with very serious consequences. And this is part of what we'll see today as we continue our look at the book of James together. And so we're turning the page now from James 1 to James 2. I read uh, one person point out that James 1 is kind of a long introduction to the rest of the letter. And now James is going to get more in depth on the things that he began to bring up in the first chapter. 
And in our passage today, we're going to see James begin to explore a topic that he will return to, the idea of the rich and the poor. And specifically in this section, James is going to talk about judging according to external appearances, the sin of partiality, a sin that the, uh, that the church that James addresses appears to have been struggling with, and really something that the church throughout her history has been drawn into again and again. And so we're going to spend our time seeing how all of this played out in the ancient church, and we'll think about the ways that we can be drawn into it as well. And in the first few verses of chapter 2, we'll hear James's command to the church and how the church was falling short. And then in the back half of the passage, we're going to see why this was such a problem. And so really, when I read this passage, it feels like there's a lot of bad news in this passage, and, and there certainly is. I think this, like many passages in the book of James, this is a passage that is, that's going to unsettle us a little bit. But the good news about bad news in the Bible is that the bad news helps us to see the goodness of our God. And the bad news helps us to see that Jesus holds out a much better way for us. So we're going to start with verses 1 to 4, which I'm going to read again. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James here begins with an overall command, then he gives a very specific example. The overall command is that the church is to show no partiality. They aren't supposed to play favorites among people based on, on the same external, shallow factors that, that the rest of the world follows and honors. Showing partiality in this way, James says, is at odds with the faith that they hold. And James is beginning in chapter 2 to move into a really robust discussion of, of faith and works that, that Stan's going to come to in the upcoming weeks. And right here, he is beginning to show how certain works are out of step with the faith that the church holds to. And he's going to explain more about why this is so, but right here in verse 1, he phrases things in an interesting way. He says, "...as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory." And there's a lot of different uh, opinions on why James says what he does. But what seems to be going on here is that James is reminding the Christians that Jesus is indeed the Lord and judge of all. He is the one in charge, which means that the church is making a couple of mistakes in this situation. Number one, they're making far too great of a fuss over those that the world considers glorious. And number two, they are acting as the judges of who is worthwhile and who is significant, forgetting that Jesus is the true judge. What they are doing is out of step with their faith, out of step with the Lord of glory, who their faith is in. So if the overall command is about partiality, there seems to be one way in particular that this partiality is being exercised here, and that is in the area of wealth. But James doesn't just kind of tell them this in, in bullet point style. He, he paints a picture for them, a story of two men who come in to a church assembly. The first man comes in, and he's wearing clothes that really send a message, fine clothing and a gold ring. And we have to understand that that clothes, especially during the time that, that James wrote, were a major way that rich people signaled their superiority. Back then, most people made their own clothes, just kind of cobbled them together, but not the rich. They bought fine clothes 
that made them stand out. Even, even the gold ring, the, the literal way this is phrased is that his fingers are be-ringed. <laughs> the gold ring was something that certain members of Roman upper class would wear, and it's possible that James was referring to that here. When this man enters the assembly, there is no doubt as to his status in the eyes of the world. And the same is true of the other man who comes in. This man is poor, and as wonderful as the first man's clothes were, that's how disheveled the second man is. And both men enter the assembly. Now at this point, there's not really a problem yet uh, for the church that some people that are going to come in are going to be wealthy, some not. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing when the the church sees people from different backgrounds gathering together, coming through their doors. The problem, of course, is in the response. So what is the response? Well, it starts, you'll see, with attention. The rich person is paid attention to. And the church sees and notices the rich person and is eager to provide well for them. And those of you that have visited churches before, you know how hard it is when you come and you're the visitor and, boy, no one just seems to really pay attention to you. It it can be difficult. So the rich man is offered a really great seat that goes along with their social standing. They're, They're given an actual seat. And probably, the way this is phrased, commentators say, they are offered along with this seat a place not just for them to sit, but a place for them to rest their feet. They are offered a footstool, which even in the Bible can be a clear scene, a sign of power, but more practically speaking, it keeps them from having to touch the floor in any way, which unlike our floor here, probably would have been pretty dirty and and kind of disgusting. The rich person is basically escorted to first class. And why? Because they are rich, because of the standards of the world. And of course, things don't go as well for the poor person. They are told to stand in a certain spot. Either that or they could sit on the floor the same floor that the church was striving to have the rich man's feet avoid touching. Why? Because they are poor. And James points beyond this situation to what is going on in the hearts of the Christians that he is addressing. James says that in acting this way, they have made distinctions among themselves and have become judges with evil hearts. The church is making judgments according to the standards that the world has, not the standards that God has given them. They are choosing their own ways over what God has told them. God has told them in the Bible not to show partiality. And we know that God the Father sent Jesus the Son who welcomed the poor and encouraged the poor, that the kingdom of God belonged to them. The church was acting just like the world around them, which was a crisis that James was addressing. And that story about two people entering a church assembly, well, that's been played out over and over all throughout church history in small ways and large. And there have been times where the church has really responded and displayed the glory of the Lord Jesus. And there are also times when the church has failed. We see both failure and success even in the Bible. Very early in the church's history, in Acts chapter 6, the church was playing favorites when it came to the distribution of food to widows in the congregation. And the favoritism there was tied to ethnicity, and the, and the Greek widows were being left out of the distribution while the Jewish widows were receiving their fair share. But then there was this truly great and truly pivotal moment in church history. The church does something about it. They hear the complaint, they act, they appoint deacons, apparently deacons who were Greek, judging by their names, to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Favoritism partiality was the natural bent of the people and the church 
But the Lord worked and made the church more like the people they were called to be. And again, it was such a pivotal moment for the early church. And these failures and successes continued throughout the history of the church, and of course, they continue today. Uh, Last year, I read a really excellent church history book called Bullies and Saints. And the author, John Dixon, he was committed to honestly speaking of, of both the good and the bad in church history. And there's plenty of good in this area, lest we think that the Lord hasn't worked in this way. He absolutely has. Uh, One of the things, if if you go back to the early church in Rome, one of the things that stood out about the church was that they, unlike uh, all the people, the rest of the society around them, that they were committed to fighting against partiality in many forms. And the author, Dixon, quotes Teresa Morgan, a professor in Greco-Roman history at the University of Oxford. She says that the way that, that Christians charitably cared for others in ancient Rome was, quote, completely different than anything that is in popular moral consciousness. This is a world, she says, with no social safety nets. But Christians create social safety nets. They are the people who are notorious for looking after the widows, the poor, the orphans, the people who in most of society are just slung out onto the street. And the book goes on to talk about how long and hard the church fought against the influence of of partiality and even money in their congregations. I didn't know this. For a long time, church leaders like bishops, they were not allowed to come from the elites of society because the church leaders, they were just worried that the the influence of partiality would come in. And this eventually changed, but the early church in many ways heeded the warnings of James and pushed back against partiality, pushed back against favoritism towards the rich. When a rich person and a poor person walked into the early church, it was a pretty good bet that they would both be welcomed and that over time the rich person would become less rich, and the poor person would become less poor as the church shared life with one another. Of course, the church has had its share of failures in this area as well. Of course, the American church has often struggled with partiality, and we see this especially when we read the history of ethnicity and the church in America. Right here in Philadelphia, we remember the story from long ago of Richard Allen and St. George's Methodist Church. Allen was a black man and a pastor, and as more black people came to the church, the church's white membership and leadership, they tried to restrict the black people in the church to certain areas. And eventually, Richard Allen and many others would leave the church to form the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And stories like that can be repeated, we know, sadly, ad nauseum, both from long ago and even up into the present day. And we're not going to do a deep dive on this today, but I would encourage you to continue to study the history, as even the history of our denomination is very checkered in this area. Our denomination was was formed by men who had robust theology, but also for some of them, wrong and sinful ideas about issues like race and even segregation. You know, we still bear these wounds today, and our denomination still struggles to be a true and diverse representation of the body of Christ as a result, although thankfully many are working hard to change this. The church in America struggles in this way as well, and so We continue to listen and pray and repent along these lines. And we know partiality can take many forms, and so it's good for all of us as individuals and even as a church to consider our own proclivities to partiality. We are going to be tempted to welcome and care for people according to these proclivities. For example, at our church, we tend to have a sweet spot around young families. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. We love young families. We're, we're glad that you're here. It's, it's, it's great. 
But it can be easy for us to welcome those people more than others. And so we might have to be especially aware of people that don't fit into that category because we want everyone to be welcomed. And this is always important, but, but especially in the world we live in today, as we prayed earlier, as people struggle with loneliness, as our society struggles with, with anger and polarization that leads to isolation. The privilege of the church is to stand out as a counterculture, a place that, that, that gives welcome, a place that shows unity across those lines that society draws, be they around wealth or race, political affiliation, age, family and marital status, and so on. And you know, one of the distinctive marks of Meadowcroft over the years has been that this church does welcome people well. And that is the grace of God. And I want to encourage you in that. And we want to see that deepen and continue. See, when the church does stand out in this way, it is not just right, but it is also beautiful. There's such great beauty in the church dwelling together in this way. And it's a beauty that reflects the beauty of our Lord. Erwin Entz, who's a pastor in our denomination, he wrote a book called The Beautiful Community. And he said this, he says, to say that the Lord is beautiful is to say that he is beautiful community. His beautiful, simple love is expressed in perfect agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit. God is the apex of unchanging beauty as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternally existent, mutually glorifying, loving, honoring, and supporting diverse community. See, a church community that rejects partiality is indeed a beautiful community because this beautiful community reflects our beautiful God. And that's why it's such a tragedy when the church chooses the easy way of partiality instead. And it's a tragedy that, that James details further in the next few verses, in verses 5 to 7. And in these verses, James is going to show that the churches aren't just wrong for doing what they are doing. It also makes zero sense and that the church is, in fact, hurting itself. Verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James begins here with the word, listen. He's, he's moving to a new point and he is being emphatic about it. And he reminds the Christians that the way that God operates is not the way that the world operates. The world lives according to the principle that, that the rich are worthy of honor and that the poor might as well be forgotten. But God is always turning the world's tables over. He's chosen the poor, the poor of the world who hope and trust in God will be blessed. The poor of the world who trust in God will inherit his kingdom. I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's one of the favorite things I've ever read or watched. There was a, there was a fascinating study done a few years back involving uh, my favorite board game, uh, the board game Monopoly. The experiment involved uh, bringing two random people into a room and observing them as they played a game of Monopoly together. But there was a catch uh, to this game. The catch was at the beginning of the game, they would flip a coin and the winner of the coin toss would gain a series of advantages. The person who gained the advantages would get twice as much money to start. He would double the salary when he passed oh, $400 every time, amazing. And he'd get to roll two dice while the other player would only get to roll one. The difference in behavior between the two players was dramatic. 
The rich player talked a ton of trash during the game. The rich player spoke more rudely to the poor player. This is Monopoly, remember. The rich player ate more of the bowl of pretzels that were put on the table. And the best part is that at the end of the game, the researchers asked the rich players to talk about why they won. And the reason that they gave primarily was that they won because they had the best strategy. <laughs> An article was written to describe this study, which included several other uh, experiments, and it summed it up by saying, wealth and abundance give us a sense of freedom and independence from others. The less we have to rely on others, the less we may care about their feelings. This leads us towards becoming more self-focused. Generally speaking, an excess of money tends to make us, to lead us towards being less and less human. And the love of money, we know, because the Bible tells us, always makes us less and less human. And this helps us to understand what James is saying when he says that God has chosen the poor of the world, which is a consistent biblical theme. And I don't want to give all the, the usual and important caveats here. Being poor does not save you. But if you are poor and you are trusting in God, know that you are blessed and rich in him. And at the same time as being poor does not save you, being rich does not condemn you. There are indeed rich believers in the Bible. And so if you have wealth, the Bible does not condemn you. But if you do have wealth, and in a wealthy suburban area, in a wealthy nation, many of us do have wealth. Look, the Bible does not condemn us, but the Bible at times does unsettle us. It's easy to equate riches with blessing. And there is a sense, yes, of course, the money we have is a good gift from God, but there's also a larger sense where equating the amount of riches that we have with how much we are blessed is simply worldly thinking. And when the Bible gives us warning after warning about the dangers of wealth, it's good for us to be unsettled sometimes. Proverbs 30 gives us words along these lines that it would be good for us to pray. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And so it's right and reasonable for Christians to wrestle with the question that we aren't always encouraged to ask in America. How much is enough? to grapple with and reject American ideals of wealth and accumulation and consumption in order that we might not be led into the grave temptation that the Proverbs talks about of trusting in our wealth and in order that we might more fully know Jesus and the joy of dependence on him and the joy of deep generosity and in order that our character might be formed according to the way of the spirit and not the way of the world. But the Christians in the book of James are not thinking along these lines. Like everyone else, they are trying to make sense of the world around them. And the way that the world makes sense of things is that the rich are worthy of honor and the poor are dispensable. And they live this out in their church, which again is tragic, and it also makes very little sense. As James reminds them, they, they are fawning over the rich, but the rich do not return the favor. The rich think nothing of oppressing them and dragging them into court. And James goes so far as to say that, that the rich are actually blaspheming the name of Jesus, which could refer to things that, that they're actually saying, or more likely, I think James is equating their persecuting of Christians with blaspheming the name of Jesus. 
And this is very consistent with what we know about this time in history. One commentator noted that, you know, at the time of this letter, there was a small group of landowners where the wealth was concentrated. They were using their wealth to oppress others. What the rich were doing in this community deserves judgment, not celebration. And James will return to these ideas with a much sharper focus later in the book. See, there's a bitter irony to what is happening. The Christians being addressed by James see the rich as powerful, and they think that by associating with them, that they too will be powerful, ultimately that they will be blessed. But because the rich are powerful and because their character has not been formed according to the love of God so that they might exercise that power well, and because the kingdom of God does not operate by the standards of the world, the church is setting itself up for a fall. They are giving themselves over to the very people who blaspheme the name of Jesus. Because the church is judging according to worldly standards, they have aligned themselves with the world and not with Jesus. And because they have aligned themselves with the world, yes, they are hurting the poor who come into their assembly, but they're also hurting themselves. They're hurting themselves because the rich will mistreat them, and they're hurting themselves because they actually need the poor because the poor have so much to teach them about following Jesus. We still feel this today. One of the great challenges of of ministry in our context in the American suburbs is that the suburbs are almost intentionally designed to, to seal us off from the larger world, for us to feel autonomy, for us to feel like we don't need others. And for people who have wealth, it can be easy to just kind of isolate ourselves from the poor and, and their problems. And this hurts others, and at the same time, we also impoverish ourselves as a result. And we're less close to the way of Jesus and his kingdom as a result. And there aren't easy answers to this problem, but, but it's good for us to pray and consider how we can push against this, because the word of God is here to unsettle us in this way. And it's such a small thing, and, and there's so much more work to do. But I will say this is one reason our church is committed to trying to look outwardly when it comes to our finances. When we've paid our essential bills, we've funded our existing missionaries, we always take half of what is left over, and we try to help fund different ministries in need. A widows and orphans fund that our denomination has, a fund that provides seminary scholarships for minorities in our denomination so we can become a better reflection of the diverse kingdom of God. A ministry that cares for those in our community who have immigrated here and are in need. And we hope that those connections would grow beyond just giving into friendship and proximity for our own good. And as we continue to consider this passage, I think we continue to be unsettled when we remember that the rich and poor in the book of James is just one example of that larger issue of partiality and favoritism. When we realize that our partiality and favoritism is tied to our own faulty understanding of the world, when we realize that our own partiality and favoritism is tied not just to our external behavior and not even just to a wrong way of thinking, but it's tied all the way down to our disordered desires, the desires we have to be comfortable, the desires we often have to be powerful, the desires to be part of what the author C.S. Lewis called the inner ring, the desire to be accepted by the right people. And then the temptation that goes with us to compromise ourselves to remain part of that inner ring on the inside. These are the desires that were in play for the ancient church, and these are the desires that are still in play for us today in the American church. And these are the desires that are in play for each one of us. 
And so God's word, I think, properly unsettles us in this way. And we heard in James 1, we are prompted to, to look in the mirror of God's word for what it reveals about God, what it reveals about us. Now, we have a couple options when we are unsettled. We have the option of self-justification. Always a good option, right? We often employ that by focusing kind of on the evil that's out there in the world so that maybe we can feel better about ourselves by comparison. And of course, we also just have the option of kind of turning up the noise around us so we don't have to grapple with the hard questions. I've employed both of these options many times. Maybe you have as well. But Jesus offers us a better way, and it's so good. See, when we see that Jesus came to this world, setting his own riches aside so that he could be born as one who was poor, when we see that he basically lived as a refugee in his early youth for a time, when we see that he had no place to lay his head, when we see that he was continually misjudged by people according to external worldly standards, and when we see that in all these things, he flourished more deeply and fully than anyone who ever walked the earth. And when we see that because of his love, he went to the cross for sinful people like us, people who on our own don't desire God and his way, but we desire our own ways. See, when we see these things and begin to embrace him, we know that he embraces us and approves of us and cares for us. And see, that's when we begin to experience the freedom that God has for us, freedom that James longed for for the churches he was addressing. When we know and begin to experience God's love and care and generosity, and when we experience the life of a community where people are accepted and welcomed, not because they have the right amount of money or the right marital status or the right ethnicity or the right cultural and musical preferences or the right political affiliation, but because they too are placing their hope and trust in Jesus. Well, that is where the true riches are. And that's where true power is found. And that's where true beauty is found. James and the Lord Jesus, because he loves us, are inviting us away from the ways of the world and into his goodness and freedom. Inviting us into the way of weakness in the eyes of the world, which is true strength in the kingdom of God. Inviting us to envision what it will be like in the new heavens and new earth, when the temptation to honor some people and disdain others will be gone, because we will be resurrected and made new, and our desires will be made right, and we will see Jesus for all that he is. Our privilege today, and the church's privilege, is to begin now to live according to that kingdom, and to offer each other and the world around us a glimpse of the goodness and beauty of our God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you again for your word. And we thank you uh, even for the hard sayings in your word and, and the ways that we're challenged and convicted. But we're so, so thankful that you have given us Jesus. We are so thankful that he came into this world and that he embraced being born in a low condition. He embraced a life full of uh, the challenges that so many deal with. He embraced even the road to Jerusalem and the road to the cross. And Lord, in that weakness, what looked like weakness to the world is the strength and victory of God. And so we thank you today that our hope is not in who loves us, uh, the eyes of the world, 
Our hope is not in gaining power or riches, but that our hope is truly in Christ because he is the one who loves us perfectly. And Lord, we thank you for the good promises that you have given us. We look forward to the day that we will be made new and this world will be made new. Lord, we look forward to that day. We long for it. Lord, help us to reflect it now. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.